MSW Media. The rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Welcome to episode 143 of Clean Up on Aisle 45. It's Wednesday, October 18th. I'm your host, Pete Strzok. Hey, Pete. I'm Allison Gill. And um, before we get to the news, we have nearly 100 new patrons this week, which just blows my mind. Um, and we're going to continue to shout out our new patrons, but to limit trolls who would sign up to get us to say something and then canceling, uh, we're going to shout out y'all after 30 days of being with us. So we'll start the clock now. And we'll thank our Hall of Famers for the next few weeks. Um, also, I know that we've said, Pete, that you could put any name down and we would read any name, but it should go without saying that we can't read anything that would violate the law or negatively impact either of our ongoing litigations. So I just wanted to put that out there. We won't be able to read anything that could violate those things. I, I, I figured that would go without saying. We haven't seen anything like this. We haven't seen any trolls. But the show is starting to pick up um, and it's starting to get really popular. And, you know, with with the amount of, of new subscribers and oh, my gosh, thank you so much for subscribing. We're just going to we're going to do this uh, a little more carefully now. Um, and so I just wanted to sort of give everybody that heads up. But without further ado, our Hall of Famers, big thanks to Patty B, January 20 baby, Greg Kreimer, David in Brooklyn. Someone named, please don't read this on the pod. We don't need a call out. Thanks for what you do. Lance Buckley, Mr. Halfspeed, a dinosaur in dental school. I've updated my shout out name to this. I love that. <laughs> uh, one named, insert witty name here. And then Admiral Rickover's spinning corpse. And thank you for that. Admiral Rick Rickover is the head of the nuclear Navy fleet, was a, you know, pretty much created the nuclear Navy. Um, and, uh, you know, I went to nuke school um, for, for a time back in the 90s, gosh, 30 years ago. So fun shout out to Admiral Rickham over, over there. So thank you so much, everybody, for being patrons. You're incredible. You make this show go. If you want to join the team and get early ad-free access to these episodes or access to the full weekend bonus episodes and invitations to our happy hour Zoom calls where you can ask me and Pete questions, head to patreon.com slash aisle45pod. That's A-I-S-L-E 4-5-P-O-D. We do have a happy hour, Pete, this yep. Friday at Two 4 p.m. Pacific, yep. 7 Eastern. Four Pacific, seven Eastern. We'll both be there. So you can sign up now to get that invitation. And again, we thank you for supporting independent media. 
Yeah, absolutely. A hundred, a hundred percent agree with you. So much uh, thanks to everybody out there. So thank you all very much. And it's good uh, because we have a ton to cover today, including updates on the Georgia Rico case. Is jury selection in the Sydney Powell Ken Chesbo trial is set to begin next week. Next week, we've got less than 14 days until this all kicks off. We'll also go over some key moments in Trump's New York civil fraud trial. Yeah, yeah. Up there, we had a lot of uh, Weisselberg and Bernie B-I-R-N-E-Y testimony. And we have some updates on the Michigan electors case. Remember, don't forget, Mm. Michigan indicted 12 people. Um, We have some information on the second E. Jean Carroll trial and an update on one of the multiple Rudy Giuliani defamation cases. I think there's 176 people suing him. (laughs) We're just going to talk about one of them. And uh, the absolute chaos in the Republican House. So let's start in Fulton County. Yeah, so a lot going on. So the district attorney has filed an opposition to Ken Chesbro's motion to exclude his fraudulent elector memos, saying essentially, look, he shared them widely, they're political, not legal, and that the crime fraud exception applies because obviously the grand jury indicted. Now, Chesbro is arguing that the standard to indict is lower than the standard for the crime fraud exception. And uh, we'll see now it's with uh, it's with the judge. So we will see how this plays out. I think that- What do you, you know, think basi- about that argument? Because the, uh, the standard uh, to indict is just what? Like it's uh, really low, uh, right? Right. But I mean, it's still probably cause to believe that a crime's occurred. So I, it, it just, you know, there there is- there are crime fraud protections, but I think I, I find it difficult to believe that the one that the uh, Fulton County DA would not be fully aware of the fact that this is something that they're going to have to address in the litigation and that they were not right. very comfortable and confident that they could overcome um, the crime fraud exception based on you know his being an attorney. So I think this is something, again, you know, this is typical for motions practice that defendants, whether at whatever level, you know, local, state, federal level, you will see a lot of motions trying to just throw anything and everything against the wall because, you know, your full expectation that most, if not everything, is not going to succeed. But you do it anyway, because if one does work or if you get a partial ruling on one or something gets screwed up that gives you a room for, you know, future appeal, it, it's just part of the process. So I know it seems like because one, there are so many of these motions going on that we talk about week after week and coupled with the fact there's so many defendants, you know, listeners, please, you know, understand this is part of the process. This is part of what, and it's what good defense attorneys do, right? I mean, this is not, right. they're not being malicious. There's, I mean, there's, there's stupid stuff, but this is not stupid. I mean, these are, these are colorable arguments. There are things that a, a good defense will do and it's just part of the process. So, you know, stay the course. And, you know, as we're saying, again, this is coming very rapidly to ahead. And, you know, part of it is, you know, the district attorney did note, separate and distinct from the uh, motion to exclude Chesbo's memos, they want testimony from a number of people, including Ronna McDaniel slash Romney and Alex Jones. Now, it's interesting because Alex Jones uh, was with Chesbro on the ground on January 6th. And it seems in a lot of ways that Alex Jones may have been the link between although the Willard War Room and the White House. Because remember, Alex Jones was close to the leadership of the Proud Boys at every step and every breach. There's some question about whether or not he was involved in the direction and certainly whether or not he would represent that sort of the the connective tissue as you know, so many people are want to say – between the seniors of the Proud Boys, with Tario and others, to the higher ups in the war room and extending into the White House. Yeah, right. You got Cheesebro with the you know fraudulent electors memos and all that stuff, and then he's on the ground with Alex Jones on January sixth, like directing the tip of the spear Proud Boys at every step. 
Right. And it wasn't like, here, I'm going to be your like legal advisor. So it's a really interesting, <laughs> I, it, it's, it's a really, it's a, you would it's not. It's just his mobile lawyer on the ground. <laughs> right. What I would expect given Chesbro's past sort of what he's been charged with and what he's done, he doesn't strike me. This is a little odd that like, wow. Like on the day of January 6th, he was actually, you know, running around with the knuckle draggers or at least the leadership of the knuckle draggers. So it's an interesting uh, call. And again, you know, it puts it, it will be interesting to see Alex Jones, you know, who has gone through his own, you know, come to Jesus moment with a legal justice system, um, you know, with the defamation Sandy Hook uh, defamation matters. So I think Alex Jones has had a taste of not wanting to fuck around and find out when it comes to testimony. And I would expect, you know, certainly down in Georgia, uh, it'll be very interesting to see what he says. And there's a third, right? Allison, there's a third witness, a guy by the name of Andrew Hitt, who is a a Wisconsin Republican in 2020 who served as a false elector. So Chesbro attended a December 14th, 2020 meeting and spoke with Hit. So it's very interesting that, again, through the Georgia proceedings, not not the federal stuff, but just through what Fonnie Willis and her team were doing, we're starting to get insight into things that were happening in Washington, D.C. We're starting to get insight into things that were happening, happening in Wisconsin. And it just really, again, reinforces the fact that these were, there's so much overlap. It, it, yes, these were discrete events, right? What happened in Georgia was different and distinct from what happened in Michigan and Wisconsin and Arizona, but you had many of the same players and we're starting to see that potentially in testimony and they'll you know, have to presumably show up down in Georgia and provide uh, testimony. Yeah. And, um, you know, last week we reported there were, I think, six other requests of out-of-state people that she wanted to testify, including Lynn Wood. He was on that list, um, as was uh, Boris Epstein. So this is and now we've got Rana, Romney McDaniel, Alex Jones. It's going to be a very interesting trial. And again, it's all going to be televised. Right. Just again, the the amazing part, particularly as we sit and, you know, watch some of the things that are unfolding in the, you know, and I know you're talking about it probably on the Jack podcast or the Beans podcast about what's going on with a, a protective order with Trump and federal trial. It. I'm glad that we have reporters who are able to sit in the media overflow room, but there's nothing like being able to sit and watch these because it, it, it just carries a whole different level of sort of authoritativeness and builds the historical narrative in a way that, you know, God bless them. I, everybody from, you know, Anna Bauer, who's been on our, our show here and any number of other very talented reporters, it just doesn't substitute for being able to sit down and watch it. So you're absolutely right. Yeah. But <laughs> Yeah. And when I was in the court, I've only been to one proceeding and that was to set the trial date in Judge Chutkin's courtroom. It's a different atmosphere. It really is. And so I'm so glad that we're going to be able to watch this on television. And, and even, you know, I have to say, though, being there live is different from seeing it on TV, but not being able to see it at all uh, makes a huge difference. I know that um, when I went to some of the January 6th committee hearings, being in the room was quite different uh, from from watching them on television, and I, which I, you know, I did both. I was I was in the room for four of them, and then I watched the rest on on TV, and it's quite different. But the fact that we have cameras in the Fulton County courtroom is going to make such a huge difference as to what the Donald Trump side is going to be able to spin on the courtroom courthouse steps afterwards, right? Like, that's a huge deal. So I look forward to it. Yeah. And, you know, saving the best for last down in Georgia. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Fonnie Willis penned another letter uh, to Jim Jordan, who we'll talk about later at the end of the episode, essentially responding to yet more nonsense uh, demands for information that Jordan had levied on her in her office. And these are extended quotes from the letter that she sent back. And I quote, 
A charitable explanation of your correspondence is that you are ignorant of the United States and Georgia constitutions and codes. A more troubling explanation is that you are abusing your authority as chairman of the Committee on the Judiciary to attempt to obstruct and interfere with a Georgia criminal prosecution. Indeed, you confess to this motivation on Mark Levin's September 10th, 2023 show. When discussing one of my office's active prosecutions, you boasted, quote, we're trying to get all the answers, but we're trying to stop this stuff as well, unquote. Emphasis added. While you may enjoy immunity under the United States Constitution speech or debate clause, that does not make your behavior any less offensive to the rule of law. Mm. And mm. she continues. As the person chosen by the citizens of Fulton County to be their district attorney, I serve them. And my team and I are exceptionally busy. We've already written a letter, which I have attached again for your reference, explaining why the legal positions you advance are meritless. Nothing you've said in your latest letter changes that fact. As I've explained, your request implicates significant, well-recognized confidentiality interests related to an ongoing criminal matter, as well as serious constitutional concerns regarding federalism and separation of powers. Concluding, <laughs> quote, my attached prior letter provided you with four noble suggested uses of your authority as chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. One, enhancing funding for victim witness advocates. Two, expanding funding for testing all rape kits. Three, supporting the Credible Messengers Program, which helps to turn around children in trouble with the criminal justice system. And four, ensuring adequate funding to support state crime labs, which test for drugs like fentanyl. I would encourage you to focus your attention on those issues, which would make life better for the American people. Yours in service, <laughs> Fonnie Willis. So I love her signature. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And just, you know, the good news is that, you know, this letter he'll, he'll un, probably inevitably dump off on uh, James Comer or whoever, you know, the new chairman of the Judiciary Committee, Matt Gates, after he ascends to the, the speakership of the House. But we'll, we'll, we'll save that. We'll save that slight vomit in your mouth that just happened yeah, until just the, uh, in until the end of the show. We'll hold off. We got more news to get to first. Yeah. Yeah. I want to get to this news on a, on a, you know, on a solid stomach. Uh, so why don't, we, why don't we do that? But we do have to take a quick break. We still have more news in Fulton County, but um, let's take a quick break here and we'll get back to it. Stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first time lawyer, I wanna act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client 
the judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is lawyers, guns, and money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. All right, everybody, welcome back. We're still in Fulton County with a piece by Richard Fawcett and Danny Hakeem at the New York Times. While Trump fundraises off his new partial gag order in D.C., which again, we'll cover on the Jack podcast this weekend, the Fulton County defendants are getting creative in fundraising for their legal bills. Stephen C. Lee, an Illinois pastor charged in the Georgia election interference case against Trump and his allies, is hoping to fund his legal defense, at least in part, with sales of MAGA honey bottles shaped like the former president. (laughs) 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 A higher profile defendant, Rudy Giuliani, turned to a high dollar fundraiser at Trump's New Jersey golf club, $100,000 a plate to help pay for his lawyers. The ones he has left, by the way, two of his lawyers have already quit on him in Fulton County. Yes. Um, And and or who are suing him to get at some of that (laughs) sweet, sweet $100,000 dinner plate money. Yep. Yep. Now, uh, Trump has often rebuffed requests for financial help from co-defendants in other cases against him. In the Georgia case, the amount of money the other defendants are able to raise could determine whether they choose to fight their charges or make plea deals. That's why this is important, right? Mr. Lee, accused of participating in the harassment effort against a Georgia elections worker, Ruby Freeman, relied on a $3,500 donation from Rochelle Richardson, the pro-Trump internet personality who goes by Silk (laughs) of Diamond and Silk. Uh, needed that to make bail in Atlanta after his indictment in August. So Silk bailed him out. Some third-party groups are also fundraising with the stated goal of helping the defendants. One such group, Defend the Electors, portrays the Georgia prosecutions as part of a Marxist plot. (laughs) Mm. Another group, the Illinois Family Institute, is promoting the plan to raise money for Mr. Lee with the sales of those honey bottles we were talking about, similar to the popular honey bear design, but with Trump's head near the spout. The pressure to cut deals is becoming more palpable with a trial of two of the defendants, Ken, that's the cheese and the kraken, right? Kenneth Chesbro and Sidney Powell. That is set to begin next week, October 23rd. Other defendants have asked for donations on right-wing talk shows. Several are seeking financial help through Give, Send, Go, a conservative Christian fundraising platform that has been used by people who participated in the insurrection. Now, Detroit News reported this week that the Michigan Attorney General's office obtained a search warrant in August requiring Give, Send, Go to turn over information related to fundraising efforts for fake Trump electors in Michigan. So they're being investigated. Now, Ms. Powell has raised $9,000 of her $100,000 goal Mm, as of Wednesday. mm, Not so much. (laughs) But Cheesebro, Cheesebro lawyers, Manubar Aurora, set up a Give, Send, Go page, page for the cheese that says he's being buried under a mountain of legal bills. And he's shown, Cheesebro is shown smiling on a beach with his hands outstretched. <laughs> hey, hey, how, how's that going to work out for him? 
<laughs> Here's how it worked out for him. As of Wednesday afternoon, the campaign has raised twenty dollars. <laughs> yeah, well, every every journey begins with a step, and in this case, it's a twenty dollars step. And we got many many steps, many steps to go on the beach, smiling, hands outstretched. It's currently, only one set of footprints on the beach. <laughs> so. Now, get this. Chesbro has only raised 20 bucks. Harrison Floyd, the one accused of participating in the harassment of Ruby Freeman, he's raised 328 grand. Of course, he went on Bannon's show. And John Eastman, uh, um, a lawyer who, along with Chesbro, is accused of hatching the plan over fraudulent electors, he's raised $547,000. John Eastman has. It's just ridiculous to me. And I, you know, talk about Rudy, but like so much money and so much grift is going on because it's like everywhere you turn. And I was watching the a, a great Roger Stone documentary, Storm Foretold, and like woven into the Roger Stone narrative at every step of the way is him grifting, peddling books, uh, photographs, whatever. Whatever it is, there's always a hook for donate. And I was Mike. Uh, so they had Mike Flynn was at some church out. You know, this is on Twitter at a church doing a fundraising event for the Great Awakening or whatever the hell they call the tour. Again, literally passing the hat like you're at church saying, oh, you know, I've seen people in the middle. They're not, you know, this is the pastor. I've seen you all haven't given a lot of money and sitting there holding a my pillow, literally Flynn holding a big pillow encouraging people. So at every step of the way, each and every one of these folks are sitting there, hat in hand, apparently deciding, somebody saying, yeah, go smile on a beach. That's going to be a great sympathetic image for people to give you money for your legal defense fund. But everywhere, it's just, and, and you know, this is all was going on before all these legal uh, bills started rolling in, which are no joke. But I just, I, I don't know where all this money is coming from. The saddest part for me is, you know, it'd be one thing and it'd be horrible and bad if somebody like, you know, the Mercers or the DeVosses or Paul Pope Singer or some, something. you know, billionaire, you know, conservative person decided these people were all deserving of legal funds. No, these are fixed income elders. Yes. And- breaks my heart. You know, our some of our family members, some of yes. the people who didn't uncheck the box and have had their savings drained. Yeah. And um, it makes a difference. You know, they're, sad, they're yeah. going without something to do this. And that's what just drives me crazy is I, how, you know, and I, I the, the, the goal of, you know, it's in some ways noble that I'm, I don't have any money to give, but nevertheless, I'm going to give you some money, but it's all, it's all for this baloney and, you know, yeah. people are just having the wool pulled down over their eyes. And I, I just, it breaks my heart because you're right. It is not, it is not Harlan Crow dumping, you know, $500 million in some big pot for these folks. It is the people who can least afford it, who somehow, some way, some reason have gone all in on this movement and are just giving money they don't have. And it's heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Um, and, you know, Rudy, we're going to talk about him a little bit more because he's got some more sanctions on him, but he's in real bad shape, right? He already owes 150 grand or so in uh, attorney's fees in just the Ruby Freeman thing. He's being sued by Dunphy for $10 million. He's being sued by Dominion, I think, and Smartmatic for a lot of money. He's facing his indictment down in Georgia. He will probably at some point face indictment in D.C. once, <laughs> once uh, Jack Smith gets through with the Trump trial or far enough along with it. That, uh, you know, adding co-conspirators, indicting co-conspirators won't interfere with the speed of the Trump case. But, you know, he he owes uh, he's been sued by his own lawyer for one point four million dollars. 
He's been dropped by two other lawyers in Fulton County because they haven't paid him in months. They owe him. He owes them millions of dollars. I, I'm a, awaiting a lawsuit from them <laughs> as well. So he is, you know, hey, good. <laughs> yeah, I, exactly. And I mean, I think of, of all these folks, he is at least, if not the most likely, one of the most likely to end up destitute and in jail at the end of his life. Which, and who knows what the damages in the Ruby Freeman oh Shamos defamation case are going to be because the judge has already determined that they're- Guilty. Or that he's yeah. guilty. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so, what, what what assets he has. I mean, even that, that that New York apartment, you know, I think it was listed at five, six, even if he gets asking, which I don't know that he will, they, that's not going to cover all this. And then no. he's still got- the future legal fees for his defense. So I just don't see where he, you know, the goodwill, the 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 value of his name in, in marketing is is what? So he can like record celebrity endorsements via whatever that, you know, that website is where you can get somebody to like record happy birthday wishes for for folks. Cameo. He just doesn't at some point yeah, can exactly. He at some point he is going to run out of assets and he is not I mean, we'll see. And part of the shenanigans he's playing with um, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss is not disclosing his true financials, you know, the, the two turntables and a microphone that he says he has and <laughs> the leftover AV equipment. But whatever it is, I would be shocked. I mean, he's not like some, I'm willing to bet, not like some Russian oligarch who's got like several hundred million dollars hidden in the Cayman Islands. I don't, I really sincerely don't believe that, that Ruby's in good shape like that. And I think, yeah. you know, all these creditors, are out for whatever they can get and they have the ability to, you know, hire business intelligence folks who are experts at tracking down, you know, hidden mm -hmm. financial holdings. And again, it's one thing if you're trying to find where Oleg Deripaska is stashed money, if you're trying to figure out where Rudy fucking Giuliani is stashed money, it's an entirely <laughs> different proposition, an entirely easier <laughs> proposition. So, you know, we'll, we'll see where this ends, but I, I agree with you. It is not, it is not going to end well for Rudy. He's going to be hitting up the sperm banks. I, I guarantee it. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Next up. At the plasma center, donating blood. However often yep. they'll let him do it. Have you ever had hepatitis? You know, praying to God he doesn't get like disqualified from, from plasma donation every, you know, waiting for that week to pass before he can donate again. Well, the recent tattoo of Trump's face that he got on his ass would disqualify him from giving blood. Right. Dirty needles and all. It's like. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. <laughs> More orange ink. <laughs> What's going on now? Uh, with Meadows. So the 11th Circuit has scheduled oral arguments for the Mark Meadows appeal. Remember, he appealed that uh, he lost his case to remove uh, his case from Fulton County up to federal court. He appealed that to the 11th Circuit. The 11th Circuit have, has scheduled those arguments for the week of December 11th. Now, we don't know which three judges are assigned to this case because the 11th Circuit doesn't release that information until two weeks prior to the oral argument. So anticipate, you know, a little bit at or around uh, Thanksgiving. Uh, we should get an idea who those three judges are. Now, that that those are the 11th Circuit rules. And keep in mind, this is just that three-judge panel. Presumably, whoever loses has the opportunity to appeal for an en banc hearing, which means the entire uh, circuit, and or to appeal directly to the Supreme Court. So don't expect that this uh, initial 11th Circuit, and again, that's that's just, those are the hearings on mm -hmm. December 11th. They've still got to then deliberate and publish an opinion. So given the holidays, I, you know, it's possible we might see a decision prior to the end of the year, but it's also, mm. you know, in my mind, easily possible that we may be looking at 2024. January. And then at that point, the losing side saying, well, we want either an en banc hearing or, you know, petition the Supreme Court for for cert. So this is not, this is not going to be done for, for some time as far as Meadows is concerned. 
Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. And that's, I learned that I, that's something new that I learned today. 11th circuit doesn't release the names of the judges until two weeks before oral arguments. I didn't know that. So I learned something new today. That was cool. All right. Next up, we're going to talk about Rudy. He's facing new sanctions in the Ruby Freeman, like more, like I know we've already gone over multiple rounds of sanctions that he's facing, but he has new sanctions this week in the Ruby Freeman Shea Moss defamation case. And they're really, really bad news for Rudy. And we'll discuss those right after this break. Stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. All right, welcome back. Let's head down to or up to Washington, D.C. and talk about more sanctions against Rudy. This is uh, from Judge Beryl Howell's order. Quote, as ordered by the court, plaintiffs have submitted timely requests for an array of adverse evidentiary inferences to be applied at the damages trial scheduled for December 11th, 2023. I like how she calls it the damages trial, not no, the defamation it's like you're, you're, trial. You're already guilty. Yes, you are already guilty. <laughs> Default judgment has already occurred, you guilty son of a gun. Again, this is, think about how we're going to have to like, I don't know how we get on a podcast. We're going to have to get like a, a little whiteboard, like a Tim Russert style, like just keeping track of everything that is coming down the pike. But again, right, shortly right after uh, the... Um, or at this after the 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 same time almost is that eleventh circuit argument on the week of December eleventh. At the same time, literally on December eleventh, that trial has started to begin. And the continuing with the order, um, plaintiffs' claims for defamation, intentional infliction of emotional distress, 
civil conspiracy, and punitive damages. So again, you know, that is all coming at the same time that's coming probably going to be within the week or two of the end of the Trump New York AG civil fraud trial <laughs> up in New York. So all this, you know, again, sort of everything coming to a crescendo at the end of the year, separate and distinct from whatever might be going on with Trump on the federal side of things. But a lot of stuff uh, is going to be happening for the next couple of months. Now, the uh, Judge Howell continued, quote, consistent with his prior track record in this matter, Giuliani failed to file any response to plaintiff's submission, despite being permitted to do so pursuant to the September 22nd order. The adverse evidentiary inferences requested by plaintiffs are amply reasonable, given Giuliani's continued and flagrant disregard of this court's August 30 order that he produced financial-related documents concerning his personal and his business's past and present assets, revenues, income, viewership metrics, and social media reach, all of which information is potentially pertinent at the upcoming damages trial. The adverse inferences proposed by plaintiffs will therefore be instructed at trial. Now, mm -hmm. continuing, in their submission, plaintiffs also request, pursuant to the plain text of Rule 37, which is the Federal Rule of Civil Procedure, and the court's inherent power, plaintiff's submission at eight, entry of the quote-unquote final judgment for three court orders directing that Giuliani reimburse plaintiffs for their attorney's fees and costs in connection with plaintiffs' three successful discovery motions. Plaintiffs urge use of this procedural device to permit them to, quote, seek full payment of these fees through execution against defendant Giuliani's assets outside of the District of Columbia. Howell concluded, though, that given the lack of clear authority for the procedural mechanism proposed by plaintiffs in the fairly short time period before a final judgment will issue, prudence dictates issuance of a single final judgment upon which plaintiffs may then execute, pursuant to Rule 69A, in districts where Giuliani is likely to have assets. Accordingly, plaintiffs' request for issuance now of final judgments on the three discovery orders is denied. Okay, so... Yeah, he owes them like 89000 and 49000 or something like that. And they were like, we want to go get this outside of D.C. And basically the judge is like, we're going to have a final judgment in the damages trial very soon. And so once that final judgment will add the, that number, add those monies to the final judgment, then you have a mechanism to go outside to find that. Right. And part of their alarm, and I'm sure Judge Howell gets this, I mean, part of their alarm is you have so many different parties seeking to attach to Giuliani's uh, assets that they're just trying to like, you know, <laughs> trying to like, hey, before like, judge, we, 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 we know we're close, <laughs> but you need to understand that all these other people are trying to get access, you know, to his, re to his, to his uh, funds and assets at the same time. So please don't hurt us by making us wait. But, uh, you know, she said, look, A, it's coming soon. B, it's not clear that there's a procedural way to do this. And so while I, I'm willing to bet she understands those concerns, uh, you know, she said, hey, look, you know, there will be a final order. But this this is then where the, the hammer comes down against Giuliani. Oh, yeah. right? So this is, again, from the order. Ordered that pursuant to the federal rule of civil procedure 37B2A and this court's inherent power, that the following adverse inferences are established for the purposes of this action. One, the jury will be instructed that it must, when determining an appropriate sum of compensatory, presumed, and punitive damages, infer that Defendant Giuliani was intentionally trying to hide relevant discovery about the Giuliani business's finances for the purpose of shielding his assets from discovery and artificially deflating his net worth. Two. Wow. The jury will be instructed that it must, 
when determining an appropriate sum of compensatory presumed and punitive damages, infer that Defendant Giuliani was intentionally trying to hide relevant discovery about the viewership of Common Sense and his social media reach for the purpose of artificially deflating the reach of his defamatory statements. Three, the jury will be instructed that it must, when determining an appropriate sum of compensatory presumed and punitive damages, infer that Defendant Giuliani received substantial financial benefits from Defendant Giuliani's defamation of plaintiffs. Four, the jury will be instructed that it must, when determining an appropriate sum of compensatory presumed and punitive damages, infer that the Giuliani businesses continue to generate advertising revenue and other source and other income from their operations. But we're not done. <laughs> yeah, that's all the jury instructions. Yeah, right? yeah, but we're not done. It's like the next semicolon and it is further. And so new paragraph ordered the defendant Giuliani and his counsel are precluded from introducing or referencing the following at trial for purposes of, purposes of this action. One, Defendant Giuliani and his counsel will be precluded from introducing any evidence, whether through a document, witness, or other testimony that has not been disclosed or produced during discovery. <laughs> Two, Defendant Giuliani and his counsel will be precluded from making any argument or introducing any evidence stating or suggesting that he received no financial benefits or that he received only immaterial or insubstantial financial benefits from the statements he made about plaintiffs as identified in plaintiffs' amended complaint. Three, Defendant Giuliani and his counsel will be precluded from making any argument or introducing any evidence stating or suggesting that he is insolvent, bankrupt, judgment-proof, or otherwise unable to defend himself, comply with this court's orders, or satisfy an eventual judgment. So, I, just, I mean, Allison, this is, again, as, as I've said before. Basically, you have to sit there and be quiet. Yes. And, and we'll determine how much you owe them. And getting hammer, and this is a hammer. I mean, no question about it. It is. It's just an absolute hammer. And when a jury of his DC peers hear this, on top of the facts of the case, I cannot begin to imagine. And just the appalling shit that he caused, again, summary judgment's been entered. He caused through his defamation of Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, I cannot envision, I can, I can, and I chuckle about it, how this DC jury is likely to receive this information. And whatever is out there in Giuliani's possession, whatever the facts actually are, he has decided that those facts are so bad that this hammer is still somehow better than turning yeah. over that information. And that's just like, what in the hell is out there that you would sooner have this just massive hit after hit after hit after hit? What it, what's your over under? Of what, money? Oh, God. Yeah, do you think it'll be more than 10 million? Do you think it'll be five and, uh, over 10 million or under 10 million? I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's just two, right? And so some of the question is like, you know, it's like one thing when you look at Alex Jones and Sandy Hook, you look at the volume of parents, these were the death of their children, the emotional trauma of that. I, I, I think, you know, it's, it's, and that's a different state. So, well, that you know, was that was, to a that was, dollars, the, wasn't it? Right. And so I don't know how they aggregate it out. But again, you know, the, the Shamos and Ruby Freeman had to relocate. They were getting death threats. They were having people show up at their house. I mean, there was, just truly a lot of um, emotional distress and, you know, current and future impact. So mm -hmm. we'll see. I, I, I don't want to hazard a guess, but I am certain it will be on the, you know, the, whatever the, the, the guideline range is, will be on the high end of that. And Giuliani is precluded. The jury is being told, you have to accept this as true. 
and you must find and infer that all these things happened. Yeah, this is not good for him. Really, really not good for him. Uh, and so we'll be watching that trial as it, as it, as it grows closer. But uh, let's head to New York from D.C. now, because we have some news from the Trump civil fraud trial brought uh, by New York Attorney General Letitia James. We've been following this a little bit, but not as closely as Adam Klasfeld has been following it. So you should follow him for for like up-to-date information here. Uh, but through Adam Klasfeld writes, throughout his questioning on early Tuesday, Alan Weisselberg, CFO, came up empty in his responses to more than 90 questions before the lunch break in Trump's <laughs> civil fraud trial. He answered more than 60 of those questions with some variation of, I don't recall, I just don't recall, or I don't remember. He responds to more than 30 inquiries with, I don't know. The ex-CFO insisted he could not recall noticing discrepancies about the size of the Trump Tower triplex, which is 10,996 square feet. The former president routinely valued it as more than 30,000 square feet on financial statements. And Weiselberg says, I don't, I don't remember that. But Dan Alexander, the Forbes guy, <laughs> hit back hard in a piece in Forbes, saying... Weiselberg, longtime chief financial officer of the Trump Org, lied in sworn testimony on Tuesday when questioned about Donald Trump's penthouse apartment. Under questioning, Weiselberg acknowledged that the 30,000 square foot figure was wrong. He tried to suggest, however, that he had little to do with the bogus calculation, batting away a series of questions about the financial documents and discussions with Forbes, which has been valuing Trump's fortune since 1982. Quote, I never focused on the triplex, to be honest with you. That's what Weisselberg said. It was almost de minimis relative to his net worth, so I really didn't focus on it, unquote. But that's not true, Dan Alexander says. A review of my old emails and notes and some of my colleagues, some of which the attorney general's office does not possess, show that Weisselberg absolutely thought about Trump's apartment and played a key role in trying to convince Forbes over the course of several years that it was worth more than it really was. In 2012, Forbes wrote, Allen asked why we count large private estates for other billionaires, but not Trump. He said we should be including his New York penthouse. He thinks it's worth more than $88 million. Weisselberg had a point. The penthouse wasn't worth $88 million, but it was worth something. The reporter added to it to the calculation with an estimated $64 million valuation. But Dan continues, Weisselberg kept pushing. The next year, a reporter explained, now Weisselberg says it's worth $200 million and there's no debt believing the penthouse was nearly 30,000 square feet, the figure that the Trump organization would eventually claim on its internal documents. The reporter decided to bump up the estimate to $90 million. A year later, in 2014, Weisselberg once again weighed in on the value. Now, he says, it's $163 million with zero debt, a reporter wrote in her notes. So that's a bunch of lies on the stand, according to the guy at Forbes. And Klasfeld has said the New York Attorney General's office is aware of and looking into the Forbes article accusing Alan Weisselberg of perjury based on emails and reporters' notes that aren't in the state's possession. And it's interesting because Weisselberg was like mid-testimony and all of a sudden everybody's like, oh, we're going to stop. We're good for now. And it sure appeared like, okay, on the one hand, before he perjures himself anymore, and on the other hand, we need to look in and figure out whether or not he did perjure himself. So it was kind of this premature end to his testimony. But 100% agree with you both in terms of like following this. 
Adam Klasfeld's reporting and tweeting has been amazing, but also Dan Alexander, who's he's a financial reporter for Forbes. He does an amazing job. I'm like, I'm not a fin- I'm not a CPA, I'm not a financial guy, but does an extraordinary job on Twitter and in articles, kind of laying out in in plain English exactly what's going on. And he, I mean, he wrote a book called White House Inc. about you know, Donald Trump mm-hmm. and his businesses. But if you're trying to figure out, okay, I don't I don't really understand how all this valuation games are being played and why it matters, you can go there and find a really easy to understand for a non-financial person that kind of lays it out. And you're like, oh, that makes sense. And holy shit, that's dirty. I mean, and there's no, no yeah. question about it. I, it's just not, it's, it's not something that just, oh, everybody's doing it. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to make matters worse for Weisselberg, The uh, Trump Organization Assistant Vice President named Patrick Bernie was on the stand and he was asked, did Alan Weisselberg ever tell you that Donald Trump wanted his net worth on his statement of financial condition to go up? And Bernie said, yes. Nope. Yeah. (laughs) That's a key point that the New York Attorney General said that she would prove. And there it was. Um, There's also some handwritten notes on some of these financial condition statements that say final approval needed from DJT. We talked about that last week. Now, Trump's attorney, Christopher Keyes, objected to Bernie's confirmation of that exchange, describing it as inadmissible hearsay. The attorney general's office argued that the exchange fell under hearsay exceptions in New York law and precedent concerning admissions by a party opponent. Now, Manhattan Supreme Court Justice, the judge overseeing this case named Arthur Engeron, gave both parties the opportunity to submit written arguments on the issue. So they're actually going to file briefings on that exchange. That's how important it is. Um, Now, Trump was set to come to New York this week for the trial. He's going to be there uh, Tuesday, which is tomorrow as we record this, but yesterday (laughs) as the show comes out, time travel. But um, Michael Cohen's testimony, which was scheduled for Tuesday, is being postponed because Michael Cohen is sick. So I don't know if he's still going to show up. I haven't seen any um, new news on that. Uh, We'll, of course, keep you posted on this weekend's bonus episode for patrons. But, you know, I think Donald's whole reason for coming down this week was because Michael Cohen was going to testify. I don't know if he's going to come down yet. You'll know by the time this show airs whether or not he is going to be down uh, in or up in the New York court for this week. Yeah, you know, and he's got other things on his dance card this week. So we'll see oh, how he? that... Uh, <laughs> yeah, and, and so we'll know again by the time you're listening to this, we'll know whether or not he uh, he was there. But I think, like, I, I find it hard to envision that he would show up at trial just to sit there and, you know, cross his, his arms and get his I'm not holding the talking stick look on his face that he gets mm-hmm. when he can't speak. But particularly if Cohen's not there and, you know, depending on who it is that they have testifying... You know, whether or not he shows up, I don't know. I mean, a lot of it may be like performance art from the perspective of getting out there and fundraising, which he's already doing based on uh, Chotkin's protective order. So a lot mm-hmm. of this is just, you know, he's in, as we're recording, he's in Iowa giving a couple of speeches. But uh, we'll, by the time you're listening to this, we'll know uh, what he did with himself after leaving Iowa. Yeah, uh, I I don't see him wanting to sit through anything if if he was specifically going to see Michael Cohen's testimony, I don't know that he'll show up. But maybe that maybe that's not why he was going. I'm pretty sure that's why he was going, though. Um, but we'll we'll see. He does have other things going on this week um, that we can't really talk about, but um, are public publicly known information. So you can find that on the Daily Beans or on the internet. Marcy Wheeler's been talking about it. You can check that out there. All right, we have a few more updates for you, but we need to take another quick break. So everybody, stick around. We'll be right back. 
Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA as a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in an Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. All right, welcome back. We've got some miscellaneous updates for you. So staying uh, up in New York, the E. Jean Carroll defamation trial was moved back a day from January 15th to January 16th because of the Martin Luther King holiday. So just a friendly reminder that Trump has yet another trial coming up. So if you thought everything was coming to a head around Thanksgiving, Christmas time, oh no, that just the hits keep coming uh, and there'll be that defamation trial in early next year. Now remember, the judge has already found Trump defamed Eugene Carroll. So this trial is just to determine uh, damages, which again, given the given the 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 nature of the defamation, uh, much like what Rudy is facing from Rudy Freeman and Shea Moss, I, I really think this is the potential for uh, some substantial damages against Trump. Yeah, and he asked for a five million dollar cap because that's what his, uh, you know, what what uh, E. Jean was awarded in the first defamation case, and the judge said no. So there's no cap on the damages here, and um, because we've already gone to trial on this in E. Jean two. Because this is actually E. Jean one, <laughs> they're going out of order. Um, because it was already determined he defamed her in E. Jean two, they don't have to make that determination at trial. Like you said, it's just for damages. All right, over in Michigan, the preliminary exam. I don't know what that is. I guess it's a preliminary hearing for five of the twelve fraudulent electors has been adjourned from today, October twelfth, as we record this to December 13th and 14th, because the defense says they're still going over voluminous discovery. So the judge said, okay, we'll adjourn this 
preliminary hearing until December 13th and 14th for these five electors, Michonne Maddock, Kathleen Burden, Amy Facinello, Michelle Lundgren, and Marianne Henry. Now, the remaining seven have their preliminary hearing on November 2nd, but a bench warrant was issued today for Kenneth Thompson because he <laughs> failed to appear <laughs> at the preliminary hearing. This, this bird's going to fly. <laughs> yeah, so... We have a bench warrant. So, so much crime, so much crime everywhere, so much crime all surrounding. It's extraordinary to me that state after state after state, you just have all these people who are charged with committing crime to try and steal the election. And it just is all, again, you know, add it, add it to your, you know, end of the year calendar because these things are going to happen, you know, at the same time frame, right? The prelim on November 2nd, others kicking off in mid-December. So it's not something that is going to, I think, that's not the trial, right? This is not something they're they're getting discovery. This is not something where they're bringing in jurors to question them and, and start the trials going on. But there will be, you know, again, presumably motions and hearings that are going on leading up mm-hmm. to trials early next year up in Michigan. And again, fugitive Ken Thompson, wherever he may be, I suspect he will, uh, you know, show up somewhere and face, you know, potentially some more severe form of uh, pre-child detention if they if and when maybe they he's find at him. Christopher Worrell's house. <laughs> 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 with, with the with the grenades and the cash and the, and oh the, my God. And the I, bomb just, shelter. So, uh. Yeah, and so a couple of uh, you know another random uh, series of goings on. Let's let's go to everybody's favorite clown car, House Republicans. Mm. So first from CNN, in recent closed door testimony to Congress, the top ranking Justice Department prosecutor in Washington D.C. refuted claims from two IRS whistleblowers that he blocked federal investigators from charging Hunter Biden with tax crimes in D.C. So this is the U.S. Attorney Matthew Graves, the the U.S. Attorney in Washington, said in his private deposition last week that even though his office declined to formally partner up on the case, he did offer logistical support to David Weiss. Now, this new testimony absolutely discredits, yet again, claims made by two IRS whistleblowers that House Republicans have used up to this point to try and fuel an impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden. Last month, remember, testimony from a number of both FBI and IRS officials cast doubt on key allegations by the the two IRS whistleblowers, Shapley and Ziegler, including... The assertion that Weiss had claimed that he lacked authority to bring charges against the president's son and that he had been denied a request for special counsel status by Justice Department officials. Weiss has denied both of those allegations. So, and now we've got, you know, the charges against Hunter, potentially superseding charges. We have lawsuits now that Hunter and is bringing via Abby Lowell against, uh, you know, various folks that I think, again, this, there is so much setting any sort of whether or not there's any sort of civil liability for disclosing, you know, information from tax records, whether there's any sort of liability from, you know, messing around and committing any sort of computer intrusion type crimes from the data surrounding the, the what was on the laptop. Setting all that aside, you still have the prospect of criminal trials where there are at least some witnesses where all these conflicting statements are there. And that's something that absolutely good defense attorneys are going to use to cast credibility questions about witnesses when you're sitting there and saying, okay, well, you testified to A, 
But yet there are all these other statements from people saying, well, not A, actually B. Well, actually, no, it's a combination of C and D. So in terms of how a good defense attorney will use all of this, he said, she said, no, this didn't happen the way. It, it absolutely is a potential goldmine for a good defense attorney seeking to undermine the testimony of government witnesses in front of the jury. So again, and then then you absolutely add on, add on all the questions about whether or not you know material was not turned over that should have been, whether or not there is any sort of you know computer crime or other you know tax tax uh, disclosure laws that were broken. When you add that all that in there, it's just a hell of a mess, and it's not a mess that looks good at all for House Republicans. No, and the fact that they're you know, and we know Hunter Biden is suing the IRS uh, for releasing his his tax information. We had a guy just plead guilty this week to stealing from the IRS. He was a, he was an IRS contractor and he released a bunch of rich people's tax returns to the press, ProPublica, and he released Trump's tax returns to the New York Times. <laughs> That's why they were able to put out that huge uh, piece, uh, like multi-part series on Trump's tax returns. And he pled guilty. He's facing eight to 14 months in prison for as an IRS contractor for handing that stuff out. Uh, and so it's going to be very difficult. First of all, charges have not been brought against Hunter Biden for his tax crimes and for, you know, for not paying his taxes. Uh, and I don't know that David Weiss will want to bring those charges because Jim Jordan's quote unquote whistleblowers have pretty much single handedly tanked any case that David Weiss could bring because of the public spectacle, releasing his tax returns in hearings, talking Marjorie Taylor Greene showing naked pictures, you know, like it would be very difficult to bring those charges at this point. And I'm also they didn't bring charges against Roger Stone, who failed to pay two million in taxes. The IRS has put a lien on Rudy Giuliani's house, his apartment, because he's failed to pay half a million dollars in taxes, but they didn't indict him. Uh, and Hunter Biden paid his taxes back. So I don't know that they're I don't think David Weiss is going to bring tax charges. We'll see. It would be, I think it would be very stupid uh, to do that. Uh, and the one gun charge he did bring could end up being unconstitutional. Uh, so, yeah, <laughs> it's all just a, a huge spectacle. And it's so yeah, stupid. If it if it is horrible, if it's been poorly coordinated, if it's coming up absolutely empty, if you're doing that based on your record of never having passed a single bill ever during the entirety of your service as a congressman, hey, how about we make you Speaker of the House? Sound like a good deal? Well, I, only if you've participated in an insurrection. Sure. And, you know, what you do bring to the table is you've already established your bona fides about, you know, allegedly covering up sexual assault uh, by by a uh, university doctor against a number of student athletes under your care. So to me, why not? And, you know, some extraordinary record on some of the most harshest restrictive uh, abortion legislation proposals that have been seen. Um, let's let's just roll it all in there. Sounds like a recipe. Sounds like a recipe for great success uh, for our nation, for Congress, and certainly you know rolling into the twenty twenty four elections. Let's see how that works out. So it'll look great, I think, on the world stage. I don't. What do you think? What do you think? You think Jim's? Uh, you think Jim's got it at this point? Well, it didn't look like it, right? Because they had those closed door ballots and he was about 55 votes short. And there were at least 20 Republicans in the House saying, I won't ever, ever, ever. You could torture me. I will not vote for Jim Jordan. And they flipped. Mike Rogers, for example, like, like some of the really, really strong holdouts. The Never Jordans. Flipped. Yep. He's been calling them and, and sending them messages. Now, some of the reporters in in the Capitol have been saying that a lot of people were upset 
because they felt like they were being bullied by Jim Jordan. He didn't like they didn't like the way he was approaching them. Um, but we've got a ton of votes flipping. He may actually be able to somehow get to 217. I don't know. The vote will take place on Tuesday, which is the day before this episode airs. So I think we'll have a better picture of what the house looks like, uh, on, on Wednesday as this episode airs, but my God, Jim Jordan, I mean, this was the whole goal though. The idea you know, McCarthy was walking a, a tightrope because he was being pushed out by the one vote motion to vacate by the this very small, small minority Putin caucus, right, in, in 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 the House. And now one of the members of that tiny minority that's been holding the House hostage could be elected speaker. It just blows my mind. Yeah. And I mean, it was there were Republicans laughing about it on, you know, commenting the various congressional reporters saying, well, it's well known, you know, moderates are going to fold. They have no backbone. It's, you know, they say what they want about Jordan. At the end of the day, they're going to be a vote in Jordan's column because they lack the the wherewithal to do that. Now, I mean, look, people are saying that a good- Basically meaning there are no moderates. A dozen or more of the- presumed now yes votes from Jordan are in contested districts, meaning, you know, if they anger their home constituents enough by voting for Jordan, it could put their reelection in jeopardy come 2024. But, you know, that's a long way off. The amount of damage Jim Jordan can do between now and then, even if they don't get reelected, even if, you know, the house flips blue again, there's a tremendous amount of harm that could occur. And, you know, I'm just praying like move, move, you know, the vice president to secure undisclosed location, you know, make sure that, you know, there's never a need to call in the second in line for the presidency if, if this comes to pass. But I just, it's, it's ridiculous. I mean, he is not a serious lawmaker. He is truly, if you look at his legislative record, I mean, Madison Cawthorn's record is more distinguished when it comes to actual <laughs> legislation than what Ooh, Jim Jordan did. that's a low did, blow. Which is, well, I, it, it just, I, it, it, it is a joke. And did you notice too that the gates, the Cawthorning of gates sort of stopped? We had Mullen come out and say he was crushing up dick pills and snorting them and drinking energy drinks so he could go all night and showing naked videos and bragging about his conquests on the floor and you know, that he had told a bunch of donors privately that he thought the, the Joe Biden impeachment was stupid and a waste of time. That seems to have stopped. Yeah. And there was also there was also like a rumor that the Washington Post had a story that had a bunch of negative information about Jim Jordan that obviously hasn't come out. I don't I would expect if there's any I mean, what I will say is like there there's been a great PR job on the part of Jordan and his allies working the media working his fellow Republican members to whip up support. Did it, was the negative story about Gates or Jordan? No, this is about Jordan. About Jordan. Oh, okay, there was gotcha. allegedly something, but I, you know, somebody was talking about that, and I, again, I, I would expect right. if that existed. I mean, maybe it's still coming. But if you have got that story, you know, time to get it out is now before the vote. But what's he got on these? Moderates. I, I don't know. You know. And the other thing is, like, you know, people are saying, oh, this has been the Freedom Caucus's plan all along. They're playing chess and everybody else is playing checkers. It was like, you know, put McCarthy in there and we'll eventually force him out. And then, you know, after Scalise or whoever fails and we'll get our guy in. I, I don't think they have that much, uh, you know, planning capability to. No, pull this something is chaos. Like this, they are completely yes. disorganized and they don't know what they're fucking doing day by day. I, I imagine maybe Trump called these holdouts himself. Maybe, uh, you know, I don't I don't know. Maybe threatened primaries. But these 18, we call them the Biden 18, right? There's 18 House Republicans who are in districts that Biden won in, in 2020 uh, that could lose their seats like this kind of 
These kinds of shenanigans, uh, you know, aren't if somebody threatened me with a, a primarying with a Donald Trump candidate, I would be like, oh, I'm super scared because he's lost like 98 percent of those. Yeah. <laughs> elections. Right. That, that's why we have a blue Senate still. And that's why the red wave never materialized. And it, right. it, it's not. And given Jordan's extraordinarily extreme positions, I mean, somebody you thought you thought Dobbs motivated middle America to vote blue? Wait until you see what Jim Jordan has proposed on women's access to reproductive health care. Just, just go research it and look at it now. Federal ban. Yeah. I mean, it's it's and and the idea that he is going. I mean, because part of the speaker's job is one to get to to lead and rally the party, but the other thing, there's a huge component of the job that's fundraising, and I just don't see Jim Jordan being a decent. Their job as the speaker is to get out there and fundraise so that when you get to these elections, that you have the money that you can direct to contested races. And if Jim Jordan, by all accounts, is not at all a good fundraiser, what that means then is when time comes. I mean, look at Bobert. Bobert's been like out fundraised. 10, 10 to 1, I mean, by an extraordinary amount out in Colorado. 3.4 million to 800,000 right. from Adam Frisch. So when it comes, when push comes to shove and you get those 18 competitive districts and those 18 Republicans come hat in hand to the RNC and to the, the other you know committees who have the funding, if Jim Jordan can't fundraise and there just ain't any money in the pot, it's all the bill's going to come due. But again, don't you can't you can't look at this and say, oh, okay, well, you know, the next you know the next Congress, uh, wait until the elections of twenty four. That's 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 what twelve, thirteen months away still, fourteen months away still. So yeah, there's the amount of harm between now and then is extraordinary. Well, he could sell some my pillow sandals, or I mean, sell some fucking honey in a jar that looks like Trump's honey. big ass maga honey. Right, right, right. Or maybe he could set up a give send go with him on the beach with his hands outstretched. I mean. Yeah. Whatever it takes. <laughs> oh, it's going to be, um, 2024 is going to be very interesting. First of all, it's just back to back to back to back trials. And, you know, it, it's it's also important to note, you know, and we'll talk about this a little bit on the Jack podcast, that his, you know, she refused today when she set up a partial gag order that uh, she refused to move the trial. Still is the day um, before Super Tuesday. Uh, but he could go into his trial being the presumptive nominee because California is going first and they've, you know, they've rigged a lot of these primaries that, that so that Trump will just win them. Yeah. And look, I can easily see that trial being the only potential trial that Trump, criminal trial that Trump faces prior to the election because Eileen yep. Cannon, every indication that's going to guarantee, I, I will come as close to guaranteeing anything that that is not going to happen prior to the election. No, Given that Fulton so County either. is saying we're going to get through the speedies before we turn our attention to the rest, that could easily go past the election. So, I, you know, New York, mm -hmm. Alvin Bragg has already, you know, indicated a, a, a willingness to, to postpone that down the line. And so really, if you're looking at the landscape, yeah, there are a ton of trials. Pull out all the civil ones, which you can't go to jail for. Of all the criminal things that are out there, really, you're looking at D.C. at the federal level. And that may be the only one that has the prospect of, of again, hitting, getting any sort of verdict before the vote in 2024. Yeah. All right. Well... I'll be looking for the give, send, go Jim Jordan on the beach photo. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> you know, until that day, um, we'll just all have to hold our breath uh, collectively. But anyway, that is our show today. Absolutely um, amazing uh, support from our new patrons. Thank you. Thank you. We will see you Friday, new patrons and old patrons alike, um, for for our happy hour, cocktails and mocktails. And you can ask me and Pete whatever you want within reason. 
And, um, well, you can ask us whatever we want. We'll answer <laughs> within reason. Um, but uh, I look forward to that. And, um, and you know, we got through another week. There's a lot of news. It's going to continue. It's just going to, there's just going to be more and more. So thank you so much for subscribing. Thank you for listening. Uh, we really do appreciate you. Yeah, 100%. And can't wait for the happy hour. Thank all of you so much for your support. Thank all of you, those who are just listening to the podcast and downloading it. Thank you for that. It, it means the world to both of us. But uh, for the patrons out there, we simply couldn't do this without you. So you are the engine that makes this happen. So thank all of you so much. Really looking forward to Friday night. And uh, that's that's all I've got. Allison, anything from you? No, nope, nothing left. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next week. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first time lawyer, I wanna act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.